Let me say thank you for the gracious invitation to appear before you today. I am happy to be reunited and reacquainted with the Star Red Wines, alums of Princeton Seminary, of whom we are very proud, and I have every confidence in them and their new field of labor. God's blessings upon you. Now to the sermon. The world in which we live is based upon the premise that we can always take charge of our lives. That no matter what confronts us with enough energy, courage, and fortitude, we can forge ahead and brush aside all obstacles that uh, impede our pathway. We are taught, especially as Americans, that we can always take charge of our lives. This take charge attitude uh, is taught to us early on. It is instilled in us as wisdom. It's taught to us as children. It is the premise upon which we are taught to succeed. I think this take charge attitude is the reason so many of us love to quote that portion of William Henley's Invictus that says it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It sounds good, but it's not true, at least not the common understanding, for it flies in the face of the providence of God. I think the psalmist had a better idea of our lives and who's in charge when the psalmist said, know that the Lord is God. It is God who hath made us and not we ourselves. We are God's people and the sheep of God's pasture. But we are taught that we can always take charge of our lives. This take charge attitude convinces us of a feeling of invincibility. And one senses this invincibility in the tragic circumstances surrounding the death some years ago of young John F. Kennedy, Jr. Young Kennedy had not been flying that long. He was not such a good pilot. His mother, who was at that time deceased, never wanted him to take flying lessons. But he took the lessons and he bought a Piper aircraft. One writer said he bought more aircraft than he could handle. And he decided, against his flight instructor's wishes, to fly up late one evening to Massachusetts to a cousin's wedding. Young Kennedy got caught in the New York traffic trying to cross the Hudson River. This was before Governor Christie, so there was no hanky-panky involved. He, he, uh, he got caught in that New York traffic trying to get across, and it was late in the evening. And the flight instructor said to him, let, let me fly you up. But no, no, said young Kennedy. There was this, this feeling. He had cheated death a couple of months before in a hang gliding accident where he crushed his ankle. 
he made it. That was this feeling. So with his wife and sister-in-law in tow, he starts out late for Massachusetts and got out over the Atlantic and darkness caught him and he soon could no longer distinguish between the land and the sea. And young Kennedy plunged to his death. And the sad thing about that death was that there was on that aircraft an automatic landing pilot. And if only someone had thought to set that automatic landing pilot when young Kennedy got in trouble, he only had to pull a lever and that plane would have righted itself and landed on that right place. But this feeling of invincibility, this feeling that we can always take charge of our situations. And I suppose it is possible to think that we can always take charge, especially when we are young and healthy, especially when we are reasonably prosperous, good job, money in the bank, especially when we are in charge of our mental faculty of judgment, I suppose it is possible to think that we can always take charge when the bright morning sun of opportunity shines so radiantly upon our pathways, when we have been the beneficiaries of rank and privilege, it is possible to think that we can always take charge. But different seasons come to all our lives. I think God is trying to tell us something with the changing of the seasons. The different seasons come. Here we are now in the icy grip of winter. And we shall soon transition into the newness and promise of spring. And then to the heat of summer. And to the coolness of autumn. I think God is trying to tell us something with the changing of the seasons. Different seasons come to all our lives. There are times in our lives when everything we touch turns to gold. There are times in our lives when the next step is so clear and so close that we would seem foolish not to take it. There are times in our lives when God is in God's heaven. And all is right with the world. But such times do not last forever. Seasons of loss, helplessness, and waiting come to all our lives. And one of the most difficult things in life to do is to learn how to wait on God through a dry and difficult season, a season where we are forced to wait, or in spite of our nerves of steel and steadfast prayers, we find ourselves unable to effect the kind of outcome we would like to see. You know, some things we can work out, but other things we have to wait 
And that is the reason our text finds us this morning in this little strange, hard-to-find book called Habakkuk. Because this so-called minor Old Testament prophet has a major word to say to us about how to wait on God. So there is in Habakkuk this morning a word for those who have grown weary waiting on the promises of God. There is a word for those who even now are struggling to come to grips with dashed hopes, shattered dreams, and uncertain futures. There is for those in Habakkuk this morning a word if you, because of life's uneven journey, find yourself struggling and therefore in need of a prescription for hard times. Habakkuk is just what the doctor ordered. What is going on in the world of this seventh century prophet that ushers in his own season of waiting? Habakkuk lived in an age of apostasy, by which I mean Habakkuk lived in an age when there was a great falling away from God. God's own people had walked away from God and were doing some of any and everything. And Habakkuk goes to God and he says to God, God, how long are you going to allow your own people to carry on this way? And God says, not long. But Habakkuk did not like the answer that God gave. Because God let it be known that he was going to use a heathen king and a heathen army to bring judgment upon his own people. And that threw Habakkuk into a state of confusion because he knew that God's own people had been wrong, but he also knew that the Babylonians were no paragons of virtue. And it threw him into a state of confusion that a high and holy God would use an unholy people to bring judgment upon his own. And the Old Testament professor Jimmy Jack Roberts said, it's at that point that Habakkuk begins to talk back to God, as did other great people of faith. Talks back to God, not out of irreverence, but out of a sense of confusion and perplexity about how God would ultimately, ultimately work out his purposes in the lives of his people. You know, it's so easy to follow God when we understand the movement of God. It is so easy to follow God when there is some discernible design to the movement of God. It's so easy to follow God as long as God is answering our prayers like we said, how we said, and when we said. But just as soon as God begins to zigzag, begins to oscillate, vacillate, then it becomes difficult to wait, for we can no longer understand how God is moving and how God is working things out. What do you do when you find yourself in a season of waiting where you are not sure how God is going to work out God's purposes in your life. What do you do 
when you are no longer sure that God is even at work in your life? What do you do? when You pray for guidance and direction, and there's only an uncertain sound coming from the trumpet. You are unhappy where you are, and yet unsure of where God is leading. What do you do? Well, some of us do what we've been taught to do. We try to step in and take charge. You've heard it said around here, no doubt. What's happening? Somebody needs to take charge around here. But in such hours, in such hours, we need to hear T.S. Eliot's advice in Ash Wednesday. Lord, teach us to sit still. Teach us to sit still. For there will come a time in all our lives when we shall have no choice but to wait. But whereas we have no choice but to wait, we do have a choice as to how we shall wait. Some people wait on God in a spirit of rebellion. They are angry that they are having to wait. They are angry that what they had hoped for, planned for, and prayed for has not come to pass. So they wait on God in a spirit of rebellion. If you say to them, wait, God will be on. Ah, I don't want to hear all of that. I don't believe that. Mumbo jumbo. So they wait in rebellion. Some people wait on God in a spirit of resignation. They just give up on God. And they go through life with a dull and listless spirit. If life has not gone as they had planned, they completely lose faith in the future. I overheard two young women in the cafeteria at Princeton one morning talking. I was not being nosy. They, I overheard them. And one young woman said to the other young woman, oh, do you think you'll ever get married again? And the other young woman said, no, no, I never want another one of those things again. Because it had not gone as she had hoped, prayed. She had completely given up that God could ever come into her life again. Some people wait on God in a spirit of resignation. When you say to them, wait, they say, ah, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. But there is a third way to wait. It is not in rebellion, it is not in resignation, but the third way to wait, and it seems to be the weight of the text. The third way to wait on God is in a spirit of anticipation. And not just any old anticipation, but tiptoe anticipation. I'm waiting on God in a spirit of tiptoe anticipation because I believe that what God has for me is more than what I can presently see. Tiptoe anticipation. That weight is alert and charged with expectation. Those who wait on tiptoe, they wait in the hope of a brighter tomorrow morning when night with all of its shadows will be passed away. Tiptoe anticipation. 
looking and expecting a change in my condition. And so in his hour of waiting, in his hour of uncertainty, Habakkuk goes to his watchtower to wait and see how God will work out his purposes. And finally, one speaks to him of a vision that awaits its appointed time. An appointed time is a set time ordered by God that can neither be rushed nor delayed. An appointed time means that God has a fixed and ordered time in which to move decisively in your life. If it has not happened yet, you're not at the end yet. For the Bible says, at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. In this second chapter of Habakkuk, God does not even tell him the contents of the vision. He simply assures him that it is a vision in which he can trust It is a promise that will surely come in his life. Uh, When you wait on that which God has promised, it is not a lie upon which you have fixed your heart. It is not a vain hope that shall bear no fruit. But when you wait on that which God has promised, it will surely come. And what are some of the things that God has promised? God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. God has promised never to give us more than we can bear. God has promised to supply our every need according to his riches in glory. And even when things don't work out, as we had hoped or as we had prayed, God has promised that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Who is it? Who is it that makes this promise? You know, a lot of people promise you things and when it comes time to deliver, they are nowhere to be found. So who is it? that makes this promise in your life of a vision that awaits its appointed time? Is it some armchair spectator? Is it some tangled-tongued theologian? Is it some myopic mystic? Who is it that makes this promise? I'll tell you who it is. It's God, the Alpha and the Omega. God, the beginning and the ending. It's God who promises and cannot lie, God who stands above the flux and flow of human history, God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, this God says it will surely come. And that is the word of hope that I leave you this morning. Dry and difficult seasons come to all our lives, but in their own way, they too are a part of the purposes of God. But all when your season of waiting is over, what has been dry and desolate in your life shall blossom as a rose. When your season of waiting is over, 
what has been so bitter to your soul shall be made sweet. When your season of waiting is over, you can join in with the psalmist and say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when your season of waiting is over, you too can sing that old African-American spiritual. I'm so glad troubles don't last always. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? And the people of God said, Amen.